Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the U.S. editor, Anthony Malakian. It's good to be here, and uh, usually I'm the big dog in the room, but uh, today it's a little bit different. Yes, and uh, we're also joined by the uh, our first guest ever, Drumroll, please. Uh, head of technology, CTO at Blackstone for almost five years, Mr. Bill Murphy. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Excited. I'm glad I could be the first guest. Yeah. Happy to have you. Um, so we're going to... Um, I have to say this. Full disclosure, had a little bit of recording issues to start. <laughs> so this is our second time around. So if uh, the takes seem even a little bit hotter or a little bit finer, it's because we've had a practice round. But that's what makes us the pros, and that's why we serve you, the people. So to start, we're going to talk about the the whole concept of business versus technology and kind of, you know, the separation when maybe it shouldn't be separated in, in the business. Uh, this is a topic that Bill is very passionate about. I've heard, it ta- heard him talk about it very passionately at many of our conferences, either as a moderator or a panelist. So I guess to start, Bill, what, what are the biggest issues you're seeing in terms of the way businesses are handling their business and their technology separately? Sure. Uh, you know, pr- I guess it's not been passionate enough, actually, because I haven't seen it really improve drastically um, in the five years so uh, or that I've been talking about it. Um, I def- you know, I think that overall there's a, a big um, desire to kind of put people in buckets um, and then those buckets uh, kind of... Uh, keep going because of the fact that it creates certain types of interactions between people who are deemed as the business, um, which I, I just hate that term because as, as a technologist, I'm somebody who's uh, trying to push our business forward, I think, as much as our, you know, people who would traditionally be called the business. So, um, you know, our IT folks need to uh, be better at understanding what we do, how we do it, and and why it needs to change. And then the business needs to be better at embracing the technologists being at the table all the time um, so that they can have all the information that they need. And I think sometimes it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because if the technologists are at an information deficit or a resource deficit, they try to get involved and it's too late. They don't understand everything. They're under time pressures. They they generally they deliver something then that's underwhelming for the for the the business client that they have, and then that erodes the trust both to engage them earlier as well as on, on delivery overall. And you know, and you could certainly see how that could go into like death spiral um, and create a bad culture. And I think that's one of the reasons why CTOs and CIOs typically have like four year. Uh, average time horizon or even lower now um, because they've been unable to kind of extricate themselves from that cycle um, and at the end of the day people then decide that they need to change and and uh, and and we start all over again um, and I do think it take, kind of takes like a different approach from both sides in order to make it work but almost every uh, every firm that I've speak to um, ones that we own ones that we look at and other things everybody says we'd love to technology to go faster um, and deliver more uh, more aggressively and, and uh, more consistently. So given how much a desire there is, there really ought to be a desire to solve this problem too. Um, so hopefully I can kind of bring awareness. Maybe we can all focus on a little bit more and, and, uh, and help solve it. I know that you know, you've mentioned us before that um, you know, for our coverage, we cover more of the strategy of firms. But you know, when it comes to something like this, it's really about the execution 
where are the areas that you find that the execution most get, goes off the rails? Where, where, I guess, does this go wrong the most that you think that firms really need to start to consider better? I think that it goes wrong because people don't understand the details of how to get something done and like what all the groundwork is that you need to lay to get it done right. So they're heavily incented to take shortcuts. And that means, you know, everything from, you know, not spending the time to clean up your data set. A lot of times they're like, ah, well, we'll just run in a separate data set someplace else and, and then we'll, we'll get to it eventually. And then they never get to it eventually. And then you do that enough times and you wind up with a complete mess and your IT architecture is so complicated, you can't innovate on top of it. So um, understanding that a lot has to go into it and there is no easy button. So really commit the time and the energy up front to make it right instead of just succumbing to you know short-term time pressure um, because most of the time the short-term deliverable that everybody's so worried about and say they how it's so important and oh my god it's really not that uh that important we're long-term investors and and uh i think having a long-term approach to how we do technology is also the right way because typically these companies, like you guys might think you need a piece of software right now and it's so critical to your to your business, but your business is going to be around for a long time, many years, right? So wouldn't you want to spend a little bit more time up front to get it, to get it right so you don't have to revisit or that you're able to, and that you're able to add um, things to it um, easily in the future? And people aren't presented those trade-offs clearly enough. So I think that's the part that's on the technologists is that we need to lay out all the trade-offs, describe why it's better to wait and what you're going to be able to do with flexibility and a better architecture in the longer run. Has it been difficult to implement those type of changes? And, you know, because that's a, a cultural change that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it, it's never easy. Um, you know, when we had to do it, it is... Um, it's hard. It's like every single conversation has to be different. You have to start with different vocabulary. You have to start with a different type of relationship. You have to start with a curiosity to learn the nitty gritty of why we need to fix things. Like what are the business reasons? What are the um, processes that are put in place? What are the regulations? What are the, what's the strategy of the overall company and where we're going and how can I set up the technology in order to best enable that in the future. Um, you cannot just sit back and wait for people to tell you what to do. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really like the core uh, way to fix it is get people who are curious and want to really, really understand on both sides. One of the things that we talked about uh, in the past is that I, I thought it was interesting. You talk about having a curiosity um, and the importance to really kind of ask questions, stuff like that. Um, I know uh, when I started out, Dan and I, we were both sports reporters and we knew everything about sports. So it was easy, always, you know, keep up on things. But then when I came over to, I started covering finance for American Banker, he came over to Waters Technology. A big mistake I made in the beginning uh, that I tried to kind of work out on its own that, or that I, try, that I made often was I tried to pretend like I knew exactly what somebody was talking about when I've never worked a, a day in finance, so I don't know what, what the hell they're talking about at all. For the, the, my editor kind of finally started to explain to me that, listen, 
they'll be happy to explain to you what they're working on. They're not going to, there'll be some people that will be, you know, kind of aggressive, you know, towards you if you don't really know what you're doing, but it's better to fully understand what they're saying so that you don't misrepresent them. They'll be happier to, you know, have their voice heard in the proper context that they want. Um, for you, I would imagine that there's probably a lot of programs, a lot of developers that are underneath that, they might be a little bit intimidated to kind of go up to you and say, I don't really understand what you're asking for right now. And then things get screwed up. What advice maybe do you have for, for people? And- for the record too, Bill takes his coffee black, no milk, no sugar. That's intimidating as hell. That's a, that's a power uh, move. That's a power move without even knowing you're making funny, a power yeah. move. I have been uh, unfortunately given that feedback. I think, and, and think about how intimidating it might be to go to, you know, to a different floor with people you don't even know and ask those questions that could be deemed as, you know, stupid in certain uh, frames. So I deal it, with it every so day. So certainly, yeah, it does. It does take a certain type of person who's willing to be vulnerable. Um, I also think it takes a culture that is set up to enable that vulnerability. Um, and now, granted, if you ask the same question five times and you're you're unwilling to learn or you haven't really, then that's a whole different story. But um, there's nothing worse than having to constantly explain right, to someone. Right, the then then you've got the wrong right, person exa- in that Exactly. Role. But I think that we our whole process um, is around question and challenge. And that goes everywhere from our investment process of how we evaluate deals to do to how we design technology. Um, you know, up and down Blackstone, I'd say the number one uh, trait that is is just Every single person has this desire to question and learn um, all the time, and it's demanded by our senior senior leadership. So, um, so I think a company culture really plays into it a lot, but it's way better to really understand it because um, you're actually doing the person you're asking a disservice by not truly understanding it. And I think if the the people who are kind of still you know are learning topics, and I'm learning topics every day, is like if you realize that if you don't put the time in to really understand or ask the questions that you need to get the real understanding, then like that person is hurt who you're trying to impress right now by pretending that you know something. Um, so our whole process is set up around questioning. Um, my business analysis function is really designed, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's good to not be knowledgeable because you kind of like the more knowledgeable you are about a topic, the more you might be kind of uh all the current behaviors and the current processes and the current status quo is like, seems like the only way to do it. Um, so if you want to be innovative, it helps to come from outside. I was one of the uh, early team um, at Capital IQ. We were, you know, we were fit in, fit in a room smaller than this, the whole, the whole company. And the two co-founders were uh, former investment bankers and we were building a platform for investment bankers. And the fact that I didn't know anything about investment banking at the time, actually I thought helped because I could take a different look at it. They would explain how they did their job and then we would try to craft new technology solutions to make that better instead of just build it exactly the same way that they were used to seeing it you know, on a, in a web browser or something like that. So um, that lack of knowledge sometimes brings new ideas to it, but you have to focus on actually getting the knowledge before you, um, you know, you then go to solution. Because sometimes people, you know, don't really listen or don't really embrace the problem set, and then you get these like off the wall solutions that are clearly um, not going to work because people didn't really understand. The yeah, industry. it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance balance because I've heard that before that sometimes that lack of domain knowledge will provide you a truly interesting, innovative, out of outside of the box solution. But you're, you're right, there is that balance also where it can't be too ridiculous where it's like, well, this is just never going to work at all. This is insane. Right. So, uh, switching gears a little bit, we have a lot of vendors that listen. We have a lot of 
you know, people working at software companies and whatnot. And we want to, you know, offer them some guidance, give them some help. We've given Tony and I have given our uh, PR folks a lot of help uh, a couple episodes ago. So <laughs> if I am vendor XYZ and I have product XYZ, we won't specify if it's a, pl- a trading platform or risk management. We'll just say product XYZ. And I go into Bill Murray's Bill Murphy's office. I'm sure that... Or Bill Murray's office. Or Bill Murray. That'd be, that'd be a lot do. better. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, he wants to deal with those guys. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure you have a ton of those posters where it has like the one word like perseverance or like <laughs> yeah, okay. the kitty cat holding onto the branch. So I walk in and you're drinking your black coffee and you're very intimidating. What is the best way that I can pitch you a product? What do you like to see or hear when vendors are explaining to you about their product and what really bothers you when they explain or what's not valuable to you? Yeah, I think that it it all comes down to first understanding the problem set. Um you know, there's a there's some classic books on complex sales, and they always start with, and as you can read them, if, you know, if, if you want to get, you can Google complex selling. But it's about the salesperson understanding what the issues are that their solution or any solution is meant to solve. Um, because if you bring me something, it might be the greatest, you know, like a rotisserie baseball software. But if you come in and pitch that to me, I don't have a need for that, right? So you're just wasting my time. And it might be the greatest solution you've ever, I've ever seen, but who cares to me right now? So it has to be relevant first. And by, in order to create to see whether that's relevant, that takes questions. It actually comes back to the same point we were just making is like, ask questions first. Um, Now, a lot of salespeople have been trained to to do that, but then I feel like they don't listen (laughs) to what the answers are. And then they go into their predefined speech after that. Um, And uh, that doesn't help either. That actually just wastes the time because now I've told you what I want and then you're ignoring me and you're telling me what you have anyway because you know there are very few times but when a, a salesperson comes in they ask you what you need and then they get up and they say you know what I don't have anything for you thanks and they save me the 20 minutes of listening of them drone on about their solution um, I much prefer that um, everyone and then you'll be more inclined to listen totally. to totally the, the next time, time they, they come, come back they're gonna have massive credibility with me and I'll take that meeting every every day and, and twice on Sunday so, so the lesson here is to come up with a product you know Bill doesn't need walk in <laughs> and then be like I can't pitch this to you this is gonna work and then you make the call a month later and then your money well I have this rotisserie software but I'm in a head-to-head league. What are you going to yeah, do for exactly, me? Right? Exactly. The other thing that, that I think is um, is interesting, it, it also goes not just for the vendor pitches, but even the emails, right? Like if you can appeal to a problem, it's much better than telling me about your solution, right? So if I get an email and I get, you know, they spam all the time, you know, don't you want to, um, you know, don't you want to buy my, uh, you know, whatever uh, system instead of, do you have a problem with this type of compliance and you'd like to do it more effectively? Are you burning man hours? Are your developers spending too much time uh, you know, fixing bugs that shouldn't have existed in the first place? Are you, you know, we have a solution to these problems. Um, and lead with the problem. Always lead with the problem because that'll, you know, peak my well actually, yeah, we do have that problem. Let me let me dig a little bit of deep a little bit deeper. But other you know, a lot of times the vendors they expect you to make all the connections in your head. And then the better the product is, actually, sometimes the salespeople are worse 
because they they get kind of positive reinforcement of bad behavior because the pro like if the product is so good that even if they do it that way but like even in, in the demo I can say oh gosh this is obvious that I need to buy this I buy it they leave going I'm the greatest salesperson in the world <laughs> whereas I'm thinking wow I bought that product even though the sales pitch was completely wrong so um, I don't think there's a great feedback loop to try to fix this problem but you know focus on the problem focus on the customer that you're trying to solve and then only then after you truly understand it get to um, get to uh, showing your product the so for the other CIO CTOs that are listening what was a mistake maybe that you made earlier in your career that you learned from as far as dealing with vendors so from your end of the table where did maybe you uh, make an error uh, that you had to kind of learn from and adjust uh, for the future yeah uh, I think uh I think you 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 driving openness with the vendors in a good way is always hard. And you know, I mean, I think as you get older, you get more comfortable in your own skin, um, and you're able to kind of, you know, be open about the fact that it's not meeting my needs, and these are the things, and like, and that saves a lot of time, and it also saves the other side time too. Because if you're ultimately not going to buy it, it's it's not best for me to lead you on either. But I think a lot of people that I see and I try to teach my my team is like. Don't just be nice. It's better to be fair than nice with with uh, with folks. You want to be nice as well, but you want to be fair in a nice way. But like sometimes people just say, "Oh yeah, why don't you come in? Let's do a proof of concept. Let's do stuff." Because you feel for the person, you have empathy towards the individual, but you know that it's such a bad fit that why would I do that? And you know, and and we we burn a ton of cycles um, as an industry, both on the vendor side and the customer side, um, because of that. Sure. Another topic, uh, one of Anthony's favorite, <laughs> around talent acquisition. Right? That's oh always God, a topic. Yes. That's always a topic. See, we if hear Bill about. Murphy's talking about that's fine. Okay. All right. Yeah. But uh, kind of flipping the script. Not a vendor, but uh, either maybe a young technologist or maybe someone. 10, 15 years into their career looking for a change of pace, looking for a, a different firm. What are you looking for in an employee that comes up to you and applies for a job at Blackstone? Sure. Uh, yeah, and we're always looking for, for great developers. I think that there's generally, uh, um, and, and business analysts as well and, and other roles, but um, there's a general misunderstanding that like the best developers are 10 or even 20x better than the average. So, you know, finding those people is obviously hard, but it's also can be hugely additive to your capacity of, of being able to deliver any of those projects that we talked about earlier. So, um, so we're looking for, a lot comes down to the cultural fit that we talked about earlier in terms of somebody who's comfortable enough to ask questions, who really, really wants to learn, who um, uh, wants to, uh, wants to progress and has a certain level of maturity as well is probably important. Um, and that might be less important in certain organizations. Blackstone is a professional mature organization that still is still entrepreneurial and operate, tries to operate like a small company, but you know, we need somebody who's serious to some level. Um, so we try to kind of create uh, an entrepreneurial, small company, super open type of a culture that exists inside of, of something that, that, uh, you know, has a long legacy of, of, of being, uh, you know, pretty successful. So building a tech culture inside of a finance firm is, uh, is something that, you know, it, it takes a bit to explain. Um, and the one thing I would say to people out there is like, I don't think you should join industries or I don't think you should join based upon the type of 
technology. Um, you should join based upon the culture of the company. Are you going to learn? Are you going to be able to add value? Are you going to like the people that's sitting next to you? And are you going to make fair compensation? If those th four things line up, it doesn't matter if you're building, you know, technology for for Blackstone or for you know sports or for clothing or for anything. It, the industry is relatively, I think, unimportant as it relates to happiness as a technologist. Um, and you know, we have a hard time. It's true in journalism too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, I, I was I love sports, but I didn't enjoy writing about sports anymore. That's why I needed to kind of change the pace, but it's a totally different industry, but I enjoyed being the journal, so that's what kept me in Yeah, it. totally. And I, and I think the – so you want to make the decision based upon the people that you're going to work with and for, not the – um, not any other pros and cons list that you come up with based upon industry or, or otherwise. Um, that's my personal belief. I actually, I, I, I say that speech to everybody who comes in for like our college hiring days and other things where we bring groups of people in. Um, because I don't think um, most people would uh, would get that advice. And it's something that I wish I had gotten when I was younger. Um, um, luckily, I think I, I made... I made some lucky, good slash lucky decisions early on. I went to Sapient right out of college, and it was really based upon culture and how to, you know, build something uh, team-wise that that I thought was special. So I felt like I learned a lot early on from that and tried to just build upon those experiences. I guess that if you don't feel like you have a mentor after a while, then you might not be in the right place, kind of, right? That, you know, because I knew for me, like, I stayed the longest when you know, I was like, okay, I am learning something from this person. This person is, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm gaining valuable information as opposed to I'm just being lost in the shuffle here a little bit. I don't, I'm not inspired or whatever. Right. Whatever yeah, and whether it's a mentor or just a mentoring environment. Like, I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to find one person who's going to, you know, shepherd you through your career and, and people who have, who have that, you know, I, you know, that, that's great. Um, but what I think what you need is you need to have pieces of that. You can have pieces of that in many people or in the overall company and the culture that can do the same thing. So you got to feel like you're moving forward um, uh, is probably the most important piece. And, and, uh, and we're just looking for people who want to move forward fast and who have obviously the skills or just like the, you know, the capacity to learn. I always say like, you know, NFL draft, they always argue like, are they drafting for position or are they drafting the best player available? Um, and I always like to draft the best player available and then train them. Um, for the position. So it's less important that you have, you know, five years of C sharp or 10 years of Java or, you know, this much SQL. It, it's much more important to demonstrate that, you know, you're willing to do whatever it takes to learn and, and also to contribute to the team environment in a great way. Sure. Sure. Well, <clears throat> as always with these podcasts, we like to do a little, some non-tech stuff, some non-fintech stuff. So Bill's a big, Big golfer, big fan of golf, and this weekend we have the U.S. Open. So, Bill, who who do you who do you got? Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. First, handicap. Uh, what 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 are you what are you shooting at? There? I'm uh I'm an eight. So uh, wow. it's going in the wrong direction though. So it's like it's hard to fit in enough practice to get any better than that. I have to say it's a it's a it's a challenge. So I play with guys sometimes who are ones and twos, and it is a whole different ball game. Um, so I, I you know. Believe me, uh, you, I feel like I'm just getting it around. Uh, yeah, this week should be interesting. It's I'm glad I'm not playing in it after looking at how they uh, how the rough looks. Um, crazy. I think I heard uh, Phil Mickelson say it was the hardest course he's ever played in his life. Which I mean, that's obviously saying something. Uh, but it's crazy. Two years in a row, right? Because last year 
uh, I forget where the Open it was, was. Chambers Bay. And it was dry as hell, right? Right. It that was a was... weird U.S. Open. This is much more traditional with, you know, the classic stuff. I played the, um, you know, another uh, venue like the the Country Club in Brookline a few years ago, and it was like the week before the U.S. Amateur, and the rough was was I don't even think it's close to what it was now, and you know you couldn't hit anything but a pitching wedge um, or a sand wedge out of the rough, even on par fives where you're like a foot off the fairway. So um, I uh, after that experience, I decided let, let's let's stay away from uh, from those experiences, <laughs> or I was going to quit golf altogether. <laughs> what is your uh, favorite golf course that you ever uh, been on? Um, um, I uh, I really like um, I would say probably two Friars Head in um, in Long Island. It's a new course, but it's amazing, and I've been lucky enough to play there twice as a guest. And uh, and also I played Pinehurst. Um, if you have, if anybody from wants to take a cool trip for a weekend, I would uh, I would go down there. And there's like eight courses, but number two is uh, is pretty cool. I hit a four iron once, and it was on the green. And uh, my buddy who's probably been listening to this will laugh about the story, but it was rolling like towards the hole barely trickling and I was so excited but I had to go to the bathroom so I left and went to the bathroom and I came back and I said where's my ball and it was like off the back down the hill <laughs> and I think I took a quadruple bokeh on that hole uh so um it was pretty diabolical but like lots of fun um so you talk about quadruple, you know quadruple bogey and how this this US Open course is going to be very tough interested to hear your perspective as a golf fan so Spieth blows up right at the at the Masters right so are you of the mindset of he choked, he lost, or are you the mindset of, oh, it shows a lot of character that he battled back and battled through after having, you know, that tough, whatever it was, a two, uh, a 12, yeah. yeah. I, I think the fact that he came back and I think he birdied 13 and 14 or sure. 13 and 15, whatever mm-hmm. it was, it was like, he put, he, he had some good swings after that. Um, if he had gone like, you know, after 12 and like, you know, bogeyed every hole in and just lost him lost it completely i think you may maybe i would have a different opinion but it seems like i mean you know from from afar he looks like he has a tremendous head on his shoulders and you know uh so i wouldn't doubt his mental capabilities but i'm i I, it's got to be hard right i mean um think about losing a podcast and and uh, having to retape it and how much that would mess up your uh that's what sets us above the rest though you know the fact that you can battle back another golf question for you does Tiger ever win a major again? I hope so. I have like, you know, Tiger Woods is my favorite athlete watching watching him is is uh, you know, obviously all the off course stuff aside, like I've never been so like bought in and excited about watching something cuz if you look at how many so Jordan Spieth I think now has missed more cuts than Tiger has ever missed in his like his whole career. <laughs> um and Tiger's obviously been on the tour for 20 years, and Jordan's been on for two. And like Jordan was the number one player of the world while he was doing that. So it just gives you an idea yeah. of how amazing Woods was. Um, and it was always just fun, like when he was in his prime, like when he would start stalking back, like you could just see everyone around him tighten up while he was just locked in and in killer mode and just yeah. going up the board, up the board, up the board. It was always fun. To watch. So I, so I'm an, I'm like an internal optimist about him because I really just all I want to see. And actually, how great would it be if one of these days it was Spieth, Day, McElroy, and Tiger battling it out for something? Like sure. we would all sign up to watch that, like you know, appointment viewing. Yeah, yeah, no, that'd be great. It's, it's you know, it's mind-boggling to see how his career you know it's one of i think it's one of the most i think it's one of the craziest sports stories in in my lifetime for sure you know i put it right up there with especially given how mentally strong he was on everything else right like i mean he was when he made that putt against mediate on a broken leg where he needed to make a 12 foot 
bender at the last. Like, it just takes amazing concentration and mental fortitude to do that. So to see him go off the rails like this is just seems completely out of character. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I wish him the best. I hope he comes back and, and we get to watch it. It would be fun. Yeah. Sport can definitely use it, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But hopefully Jason Day, uh, you know, this week, I think he's my pick. I think and and he and Spieth and even McElroy have a chance to to get to that level, but they still have a ways to go. And maybe that'll, you know, if we don't get Tiger, maybe we get somebody else who's who's that kind of galvanizing figure. As long as you have a good group yeah. that's always kind of in there, as opposed to what we've been in a lot, is just this person will win one, this person will win one. But there there isn't like this consistent, you know, this group always seems to be there on a on a Sunday. Right. I mean, I guess you know, it, it does. You do see that that the energy from the fans and everything really does come with dominance, right? When you feel like you're watching history and, you know, it's that much more exciting, you know, both to see if the history gets made or the history fails. Um, and uh, so it'd be good to get like, you know, some truly uh, historic stuff happening. Speaking of historic, what a, what a, what transition. a great transition. That's why I'm the boss. That's why I'm the big <laughs> boss man when it comes to this stuff. Speaking of his- historic, we have uh, when this will go live. We're recording on a Wednesday because Anthony already blew that up last time I tried that trick. But uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. But when this goes live, it will be Game Six of the NBA Finals. Uh, as it stands right now, um, the uh, Golden State Warriors are up three games to uh, to two on the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, controversial Game Five because of Draymond Green's absence, because of uh, the flagrant foul that was issued to him after the game. Uh, Bill, finally, I have someone in here that actually is willing to talk basketball. What's your perspective on the series? I can talk about um, it. I just like to. Rip yeah, I mean, I, I don't understand that. I'm, uh, you know, I'm an NBA guy. I, I, uh, and my kids, like, there's, I think Steph Curry probably has the highest approval rating, uh, below 15, the age of 15, of any person in the history of the world. <laughs> um, so my uh, 10 and 8 years old, and they are just like Steph Curry junkies, and they anything with the Warriors they want. So we were all we were rooting for the Warriors, and uh, I thought they were going to win in five. Um, I really did. Um, but you know, it, it, listen, if if LeBron and Kyrie go for 82 or whatever it was, um. They're going to win that game. So I would I wouldn't expect Kyrie to shoot. I think I listened to some this morning. He went 17 for 24. So there's no way that's happening again. Um, I think the Warriors close it out in six. But um, you know I uh, I think they'll if they don't close it out in six, they close it out in seven. I, I can't get off the bandwagon. Dan had a hot take the other day when we were sitting there. He called Draymond Green the most important player on. I said uh, this is what I said. Right? I said Steph Curry. Well, first of all, Steph Curry's been. I mean, awful for Steph Curry standards this final series. He has not been the Steph Curry that we've come to enjoy this entire season. But I said that if you look at the most important player on the Golden State Warriors, I think it's Draymond Green because Draymond Green allows them to go small, allows that the Golden State Warriors to play the way they need to play for Curry to excel. Yes, Curry's the best player on the team, but I think, and it was evident on Monday night, without Draymond, that team drastically changes the way they play. Yeah, I mean, don't you love podcasting? The three guys who have never played high-level <laughs> basketball can sit here and record stuff and talk about it like we know something. The... Uh, I, you know, what I think is um, regular season versus playoffs, like they get to game plan all the time. So, you know, Curry not being quite as good, like people always want to say something's wrong with him. Like they're doubling him. They're they're mugging him. They're like they're really putting a lot of pressure on the stuff that he was doing because they get to play him seven times in a row, potentially. Right. So um so I think there's overblown the what's wrong with Curry. Um, and but if you watch 
if you watch when he's off the floor and how it affects their their spacing or whatever, he's still pretty damn important. So I, you know, Draymond's super important too. I would maybe one and one A, but sure. um, it's uh, yeah, certainly, it, certainly a hot take. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we're full of full of hot takes. <laughs> As it, you're, you're a New York guy, right? Are you you're, yep. you're are you Knicks fan? Uh, no, actually, I grew up. Uh, I was St. John's guy. I really won't love St. John's. Chris Mullen, back in the really? day when I was like seven years old. And, okay. Uh, and I, it made me hate Georgetown, so I hated Patrick Ewing. I just couldn't be a Knicks fan. Really? Uh, so it's weird. Wow, okay. Because um, I was going to say, as a Knicks fan, it does. there's a little bit of hatred I had towards Steph Curry because the Knicks were one pick away it's not from, his from getting him. It, it, deep down it is because <laughs> his, he You know the Knicks wouldn't have taken him. They yeah, would have right. screwed up that did, pick yeah. some way. They, they would have taken him, but they would have screwed him you up. you got to be really upset if you're Minnesota where you could have had him twice. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, yeah. Johnny Flynn, yeah. he's doing well in probably Australia or somewhere, wherever he's playing now so god knows um but uh yeah this this has been a lot of fun bill you know we, thanks we, for having we me guys. Appreciate, I appreciate you, it. you you coming on so much um and and talking this has been great but uh i guess that's it we don't have anything to plug anymore waters rankings are all done with the voting um but uh bill thanks for thanks for coming in as always uh maybe we can have you come back at some point you sounds know, good always open to it and uh great talking to you guys yeah thanks so much thanks, and uh we will talk to you next thursday 